listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I chat with Jill Carlson, a VC at Slow, and we chat about Coinbase's decision to become an apolitical organization, and also about Jill's work in crypto, and especially how it's used to combat authoritarianism around the world. Enjoy. Hello, listeners. Today I'm excited to chat with Jill Carlson. Jill is a VC at Slow and a co-founder of the Open Money Initiative, which is a nonprofit research organization looking to guarantee the right to a free and open financial system. I love her skepticism and desire to build crypto for the public good. Jill, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you so much, Reese. It's great to be here. Yeah, excited to chat about stuff. Um, so I think the first thing to chat about is uh, news, you know, and the Coinbase post recently within the crypto world, which for listeners who don't know, Brian Armstrong wrote a thing that said, hey, we want to be apolitical, like no politics stuff in the office. Um, and it was 5% of Coinbase's employees left after that. Um, versus on the other side, this guy from Expensify just <laughs> sent out a big email to all of Expensify customers that said, vote for Biden. And so <laughs> I'm just <laughs> I'm curious, what do you think about um, this way, how companies should respond to these kinds of being apolitical or not kind of things? Look, I think that there are a few dynamics that are worth addressing around this. I think that the first is that for the last decade, perhaps even more, there's been this ethos, I think amongst corporate culture in America in general, but really pioneered by Silicon Valley of at work, your colleagues or your family, and you know you should be spending all of your time within the four walls of this startup because this is your home away from home, um, and you can bring your whole self to work. And that was, in turn, in its own turn, a backlash against what had been corporate culture in America previously, which was very sort of buttoned up, wear a suit to work, and you know leave leave your baggage at the door. Now I think that you can't as a company, as the executive team of a company, have your cake and eat it too, where you get to both say to uh, to your employee base, you know, bring your whole self to work and, uh, and you know, your, your comrades at arms here within the startup are, are your family. You don't get to say that. And then also say, oh, but by the way, you know, we're not going to be sort of 
political, um, you know, we're not going to engage in political discourse. And that tension, I think, is really worth calling out is that, you know, and I, I can't speak to this with Coinbase in particular, but certainly many, many startups who are uh, sort of the same size and shape as Coinbase very much try to drive this narrative of your workplace is, is your second home. Um, and so, again, I think that that tension is the first thing that's worth calling out here. I would yeah, say that like the, the next thing that's worth calling out is is uh, the thing that I probably worry about the most, which is really the stifling of speech um, and the stifling of being able to openly express views and opinions. And we can, of course, have a broader debate about whether, um, you know, whether it is appropriate to be expressing opinions within the workplace or not. You know, that's obviously quite different from expressing them in the proverbial public square. But I do worry in general that first sort of very extreme instances of woke culture, of sort of liberal woke culture has led to some degree of, of stifling of speech from the other side. Um, and that this is now, you know, what Brian Armstrong came out with is kind of a backlash against woke culture. And as opposed to championing, hey, let's, you know, let's make sure that there's room for healthy dialogue. Let's let's make sure that we're not engaging in cancel culture within the company. To me, at least what what he said in his open medium post was very much saying, hey, you know, rather than championing free speech, we're actually going to go the other direction and sort of stifle all speech and, and opinions around these issues. And so those are the two things that, that stood out to me the most about it and that I think are worth really acknowledging in any response to, to the Coinbase decision. Yeah, I like that. I like both of them. The first is the attention of like, oh, you should bring your whole self to work, but not that part of your whole self. It's like um, you kind of, yeah, it's tough to have your cake and eat it too there. And then the second one of, hey, we do have this maybe, I don't know if toxic is too far, but yeah, this kind of um, aggressive, sometimes performative woke culture. And so as maybe a response to that, what we should do is say, hey, let's have like a discussion about this. Um, and instead, uh, what Brian did was cancel the cancelers or whatever, um, which is- I love that, cancel slightly. the cancelers. Yeah, cancel the yeah, cancelers. no, I think that's right. I so do you think right. that, I mean, especially from a VC perspective, I mean, have you seen either your own portfolio companies or other, like, how would you, because there is this issue of like focus, you know, it's like, okay, how can you continue to focus on the things that you want to focus on while like crazy stuff happens around the world? Like not everybody can care about climate change all the time or whatever. How, like, do you have any like recommendations for your portfolio companies or for uh, companies in general? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think that this issue at the corporate level, and again, this is where I do sort of feel for and, and empathize with Coinbase and, and Brian, it's, you know, it's a very hard decision to be a decision to have to make and position to be in. But I think that it's, it's a problem that is not totally unique, but quite unique to uh, companies that are at a real sort of hyper growth stage where they've gone from being uh, a fairly tight knit community within the organization to being a real bona fide corporate structure over not a long period of time. I think that that's where you see these issues come up the most. Most of the companies that I work with, um, because Slow is a seed stage fund, are much, much earlier 
in in their growth cycle than what we're talking about here with Coinbase. And it's just less of less of an issue. Certainly not the distraction. I think that anyone who tells you that they haven't been distracted this year given the <laughs> pandemic and social unrest and you know grappling with all kinds of issues uh, in the world at large. Anyone who tells you that is lying. But um, you know, I do think that it's much easier to navigate these things when you're a team of two co-founders or a team of, you know, 12 salespeople and engineers. And, you know, you can just within that size of a group still be able to navigate and come to some semblance of social cohesion without having to sort of issue culture by fiat, I like to say, (laughs) from on high within the company. Um, Totally. Yeah. I think that it is a, yeah, if you're a small crew, you can just talk about it. You know, it's like, well, how should we think about this as a company or whatever versus, yeah, you need to create policies and procedures when you're bigger. I think also the the thing that is interesting, and I think maybe you even noted this in uh, your Coindesk post, which is how, I mean, like, so Brian's, the way that his post felt was like a on high fiat kind of vibe versus... (laughs) It's Expensify one, which was weird, by the way. It was like this guy, the CEO of Expensify, being like, hey, y'all should vote for Biden. And he sent it not only to employees, but to all customers. Um, and it was like 10. Did you see that post, by the way? I didn't see it. I did hear about it in passing. And and yeah. when you mentioned it to me, I did look it up. But yeah, cool, cool. I mean, look, I think that that is it, probably more inappropriate. <laughs> because I think, you know, to me, it just comes back to you have to start from principles here. And if the principle that you care about is the ability to express freely and have an open dialogue and and value that open dialogue, then, you know, someone in a position of power within your company or indeed, you know, someone who's selling you something, maybe that's not a position of power, but he certainly has, you know, a wedge into people's inboxes. Um, You know, I think that that's problematic as well to then be sort of forcing forcing political views down people's throats if you're not then creating the space for dialogue. And a lot of my thinking around this has stemmed from uh, a poll on an app called Blind that you may be familiar with that I saw a few weeks ago. So Blind, the app, is an app that is frequented by a lot of people within Silicon Valley. Each each company, you know, whether you work at Facebook or Google or Coinbase or whatever, you have access to the uh, the the blind for that company where people share salaries or you know share manager reviews, share gripes, these kinds of things, all anonymously. But the the poll in particular that I I'm referencing here was a, a generalized poll, sort of across the ecosystem, about whether people think that who someone votes for in the election should be grounds for firing. And an overwhelming number of people, I think not quite a majority, I can't remember the the exact numbers right now, but a shocking number of people who replied to this poll believed that who someone voted for in the election should indeed be grounds for firing from their organization. Mm. And that to me just speaks to this really scary, divided world that we're living in right now. And I, you know, if I go back to these principles, I think that part of the reason why the world is so divided is that there isn't room for discourse and disagreement. Um, And I think that that is a really dangerous thing because it's hard to see what the path back to moderation is from there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That's intense. I mean, <laughs> that's it. I'm surprised by the results of that poll. <laughs> it's yeah. just like having, hmm, that's weird. I guess it's like, yeah, you have someone else in the office and everybody's, you know, a, a West Coast, you know, or whatever. Everybody's a liberal urban uh, person. And then it's like, oh, this person vote for Trump. Should we fire them? Yeah, that, huh. it's weird. Yeah, that doesn't. That it doesn't, doesn't sit me. quite right. Right. And, you know, you, yeah. I, 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 I being who I am and having the political views that I do can make the case of like, well, you know, Trump did refuse to denounce white supremacists. Like that is pretty <laughs> problematic. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, you know, I think that if, if you subscribe to, uh, you know, what our, what our political system is and what our society promises to be, you, you can't, go about advocating for your political viewpoints or the righteousness of them or, or whatever it is by trying to just censor and stamp out the other side. I think that that's deeply counterproductive. And I think that that is what is resulting in this kind of backlash against wokeness and performative wokeness that, that we're talking about here. And I think that, you know, if you examine the success rate of, of those types of cancel culture tactics, I think over the long term, they're quite low in bringing people around to the other side. Mm -hmm, totally. Yeah, it's like you kind of, yeah, I I wish, I, I would like there to be a study about that that shows how folks, yeah, like in conversations or whatever, what it looks like to actually change people's minds. It makes me think too of just like, Sometimes people's minds change based off of uh, actually changing their minds. And something like gay marriage was actually like this, where once there was enough folks that were into it, then everybody was like, cool, yeah, we're fine with this. Um, while other things, something like whether you can read communist books is an example of this, that change based off of just like old people dying. So it's kind of like values change in society sometimes through actual mindset change and sometimes just through like, you know, like the old guard or whatever, um, just passing away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I want to ask one other question here, which is just to push on this for a second, which is if there was someone in the office or whatever that was a, and, and voting for Trump does not equal white supremacist, but if there was someone in the office that was a white supremacist or someone in the office that like went to or like actively took part in some kind of criminal activity with respect to white supremacy, then I guess that that would be closer to grounds for firing. I'm just trying to see like, at some point in time, if someone does something bad, at you, you can, I don't know what the legal rules are, but like firing them at work feels okay. I just wonder where that line looks like. And obviously there is a conflation between voting for Trump and thinking that that person is actually, that does these kind of actually really bad things. Absolutely. And I mean, look, I think that, you know, certainly the, the instance that you describe where someone is sort of, actively engaging in white supremacist culture, that is very obviously over the line to me. But I think that the reality is, is that there's a lot of gray area. And I think that, you know, something that, that you find when you do engage in relatively open-minded discourse and, and debate with people is that by and large, people aren't bad people. You know, people don't conceive of themselves as being inherently evil. You know, they... A lot of, I think, of of the behaviors that when you're on one side, you look at and you say, you know, this is, this is so obviously bad and unacceptable. If you do talk to the person who is subscribing to whatever the belief is, you might find that, oh, they actually have 
reasons and principles behind this that maybe you don't agree with, but you can at least hear out um, and and start to get a sense of and understand. Um, and, you know, again, I think that there are areas where there are very, very obvious lines to draw around that. Um, but then I think that, you know, I think that there are a lot of areas that are much more gray and, and that's very much worth acknowledging. So kind of an unsatisfactory totally. answer. I think it's very hard, though, to <laughs> sort of theorize and come up with what, you know, where the gray area is and, and how you delineate that. But um, it's, it's at least worth acknowledging that the itself. area is gray. <laughs> exactly. You're no, generous. I think, that that, I think that that's powerful. And I think that it is a, you know, thinking about, yeah, I mean, so A, on the evil side, it's like, yeah, people are not evil. And sometimes when people are quote unquote evil, like for folks that are into like QAnon or whatever, I just feel so sad for them that they've been like sucked into this like propaganda, weird media ecosystem where they somehow believe these things. It's like, um, and but so- But we so all have, of, but we mm, all have. Mm, and maybe it's yeah. not to, maybe it's not to the extent of QAnon and Pizzagate, but you know, I watch the news and I'm like, I don't know what's real. You know, I, I don't know what Biden's son did. I don't know what Trump did with regards yeah. to the Ukraine. Um, you know, I don't know what Hillary did in Libya and what, what the deal with her emails was. And so it's, you know, you just start to realize, even when you look at these very extreme cases of, yeah, people who subscribe to QAnon and, and Pizzagate and, you know, whatever the 5G coronavirus thing was, you know, things that... I and, and a lot of my friends and colleagues would tend to characterize as these very extreme uh, conspiracy theories. You realize, actually, we have a lot in common with all of those people. Like, there's a lot of stuff that that we're uncertain about as well. <laughs> yeah. We're all coming from a shared place of, like, just trying to understand what's going on. <laughs> exactly. Talk about um, trying to understand what's going on. Let's transition into the world of crypto and blockchain stuff. And uh, for me, as someone who used to work deeper in the crypto world and now has taken a little bit of a step back, I guess I just want to understand from you, Joe, like what is getting you excited about crypto these days or what's getting you kind of disheartened? Yeah, no, great question. So, um, I mean, I, I put myself a little bit in the same category as you, Reese, because I went mm -hmm. from being just myopically singularly focused on crypto um, for years and years to over the last year and a half joining a generalist venture fund as an investor and uh, and having the opportunity to take a small step back anyway and, and look at the much broader landscape of, of software and, and startups. Um, but in a way, that experience has affirmed my excitement about crypto. I, I still, as I look around at, at other spaces, and there are many which I'm excited about in run-of-the-mill, more kind of standard mainstream fintech, um, areas of health, in particular women's health that I've spent a lot of time and dived into. But even as I get excited about these other spaces, I still can't find an area where the dream is as big as that of crypto. And so that in itself is very exciting to me. Just, you know, you, you talk to people who, incredible founders who are building incredible products in, you know, enterprise SaaS or building, you know, what the future of work is going to look like. But I still then will get on the phone with crypto founders and be like, oh yeah, you are trying to build a different money system. Like you are trying to turn Wall Street on its head. And that is just such an enormous dream. So I would say that that in itself gets me really excited about crypto these days. Yeah, that's cool. I think, and actually before we dive full on the crypto, what about, I'm just curious, like in the women's health world, what 
kind of cool things are happening there these days? Oh man, so many things. And, you know, I think that it's, it's part of a broader theme that I'm certainly not alone in this, you know, goodness knows every venture capitalist loves to say they're contrarian, but there are certain spaces that have historically been stigmatized. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that women's health due to the lack of women in positions of decision-making power at funds and, and due to the, the dearth of, of female founders, um, just partly, uh, you know, a result of, of what I just pointed out. Uh, you know, I think that women's health very much has remained a stigmatized space for no other reason than that. Um, and so, you know, everything from companies working on products tackling menopause, you know, you tend to think of menopause as something that happens to like old ladies, but in fact, it's like, you know, the JLOs of the world are are going to be experiencing menopause if they're not already. And it's a very different sort of generation than one would think about, um, you know, or things around like breast cancer awareness and, and breast health. And there's just a lot of low hanging fruit to have a lot of impact on people's health outcomes, women's health outcomes. Um, and so it's it's a really exciting space to be a part of and, and to see all of the activity in. Um, yeah. but couldn't, couldn't be farther in many ways than crypto. <laughs> that is funny because like in crypto, there's, you know, there's, uh, in tech in general, there's more, you know, like, you know, white dudes or whatever. And then in crypto, there's a good amount. It's like more libertarian versus like women's health, which I can imagine is more of like a more feminist, you know, than oh, libertarian. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, cool though, to think about the women's health and just, yeah, I mean, the sadness in the classic example is just like the seatbelt story of like, oh, like, let's make seatbelts for cars. And then it was a bunch of dudes making the seatbelts who didn't even use a women's size dummy. And then they ended up making seatbelts for women that had like a higher like fatality rate because it, they like choked women and like weren't helpful for women. And so thinking something similar, but with um, with women's health, it's like, yeah, imagining getting more women into VC roles and founder roles and all these kinds of business things, then there's just going to be yeah, there's tons of low-hanging fruit to help people out, which I think is amazing. So I'm absolutely I'm as a male, I am excited. <laughs> well, thank you, Reese. And you know, I, I guess the one the one commonality I would draw with with say the women's health space or really any of these stigmatized spaces that I'm alluding to with crypto is that for the most part, I would say generalist venture funds, you know, the big names that that you tend to think of, for the most part there isn't there isn't a willingness to dive in and sort of see the granularity within these spaces like i often talk to you know women's health founders who are incredibly frustrated because they're like yeah i mean i pitched so and so the other day and you know we got to the end of the call and it was all very positive but but they said oh well you know we we just invested in a women's health company and so you know it it might not be a fit right now and it's kind of like, well, wait a second, but there's so like, there's so many companies, big companies to be built within women's health. And I think that crypto, interestingly, still has some of that same, uh, those same dynamics around it when it comes to the generalist VC funds, where they all kind of have their bet that they made back in 2017. And will continue to sniff around it and try and stay aware of things that are going on. But it's definitely not uh 
a sort of cool space to be to be spending time and I almost find myself apologizing for it sometimes on calls like I know you're not doing stuff in crypto but that's where I've been spending a lot of my time and uh-huh. and here's what's exciting to me as I talk to other venture capital investors it's funny because I feel like there's a in some ways what's happening like 2017 was small potatoes to what like it's like okay we've learned how to do an ICO cool like that's happening a bunch and also we've learned that you can make an Ethereum style smart contracting platform, but in a variety of other ways. And like, let's experiment with those. And um, that's fine. But like now there's so much, it feels like there's so much more maturity within like the DeFi building block world and stuff. So it's like, I kind of feel like there's more exciting things almost. So in any case, what for you, what is, I mean, there's like this, just the other thing, funny thing for me too, is I've always been more like excited by the Ethereum stuff. There's yeah. like the Bitcoin side, which is like, okay, cool like the recent news is like, you know, Square bought $50 million of Bitcoin and like PayPal and Venmo are adding support. And I guess that's like kind of exciting, but it's also, I, it's kind of boring. It's like, it doesn't matter, you know, like, I mean, Bitcoin, I know what you mean. yeah. Versus like in Ethereum, like people have unicorns and stuff. <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, Bitcoin and I, I give Bitcoin a lot of credit for this. Actually. I think that Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin just always kind of comes back to the fundamentals, both as a product itself and sort of the Bitcoin community and the ethos around it. Um, you know, certainly back in the early, early days of crypto, sort of 2013, 2014, there was a lot of imagination around what Bitcoin could do and where it could go and colored coins. And, you know, what if you have a Bitcoin on the blockchain that's representative of something of a security or of a diamond, and we can track things that way. And, you know, there was a lot of imagination. But again, I kind of appreciate it about Bitcoin that it tends to always come back to, okay, no, we're we're about making payments, um, you know, and we're this censorship resistant asset, inflation resistant asset, and, you know, we are the digital alternative to gold and kind of what you see is what you get. And I don't think that that necessarily means that it's it's less exciting. Although I I, I know what you're saying that mm-hmm. you know it it doesn't have some of the sort of flash and pizzazz of the unicorns and sparkles and and the big big dream of Ethereum. Um, but you know I I think that that sort of groundedness, I guess, of Bitcoin, if you could call it that, is is a part of what makes it compelling to me. I would say. Hundred percent, and for me, it was helpful to just working at MIT DCI and chatting with Bitcoin core devs. You know, every day it was like, okay, I I get the mindset there much more, which is like, yeah, don't mess this up, <laughs> you know. Um, and also yeah, be yeah, very exactly. yeah, yeah, be within that little box and like make sure you do well. Is there anything though? Like, have you guys or just for you personally? Is there anything like have you made yeah. any recent investments or anything within crypto or what's kind of uh, exciting you in that space right now? Yeah. So, uh, you know, DeFi has been very hard to ignore, um, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that for me, it's been really interesting getting to look at fintech and the fintech landscape more broadly and realize how much overlap there is in terms of what the dream there is and what the dream of DeFi is, where in fintech more broadly and, um, Alex, Alex Rampell and Angela Strange at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, not A16Z Crypto, but A16Z, the, the core fund, um, put out this sort of seminal piece on 
autonomous money and self-driving money um, a while ago. And really that has kind of defined a lot of the themes of what people are aiming to do, again, in mainstream fintech is build programmable money, um, build sort of these these backend systems that will allow money to be smart and move itself. And, you know, if I deposit into my checking account, it can know, you know, what bills I have coming up and then move the remainder into a brokerage account and then know to invest it in these kinds of stocks based on my risk profile. All of these types of things that really, again, there's a lot of overlap with what I see in DeFi. Now, of course, in mainstream fintech, that takes the form of building APIs and doing all of these heavy lifts to get integration with banks and so forth. Whereas in DeFi, it's really sort of starting from the ground up and saying, you know, forget the banks, like we are going to, we are going to build new foundations ourselves and then build programmable money and, and money Legos on top of that. Um, And so, you know, to me, I think that that's been a really interesting parallel to observe. I actually think that there's room for both and we've spent a decent amount of time investing in both. Um, at at slow. Uh, And so, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to see the interplay of that and also just to see how similar the dreams are. Um, But within DeFi, I mean, it's been impossible, obviously, to ignore how things have taken off over the course of this year. I'm very optimistic that, um, you know, DeFi, that there are nuggets of of real lasting value within DeFi. I will confess though, there is a decent amount that feels very circular and very self-referential to me within it. And so we'll, we'll see if, if the house of cards stands when all is said and done. (laughs) Or rather, yeah. uh, If, and when it falls, what parts will fall. And yeah, if you're all the, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. If the, um, it kind of, I like that, that concept though of, the taking the world from traditional fintech and applying it to DeFi and and vice versa. Is there like a, maybe could you give a specific example of something from, you know, the world that I know less of like the fintech world and how it might be directly manifest within the DeFi world? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. No, it's a great question. Um, so, I mean, I'll give, I'll give a specific example, which is a company that, that we invested in slow called Astra. Mm-hmm. And, Again, the the long term vision of Astra is really to be able to create uh, an app experience for retail where you can link up all of your different accounts, um, and then those accounts can smartly route to each other. And that's kind of the holy grail, right? And what they realized very quickly as they were creating this consumer app was, oh wait, okay actually the back end is going to be the heavy lift and we need to go back and go in and build basically all of this middleware to to plug into um you know each of these different institutions and and all of this legacy financial infrastructure in order to be able to smartly route things between each other and that you know when i look at what people are doing again with sort of programmable money and even some of the yield farming stuff where, you know, people are, um, you know, depositing funds in 
one dap in order to get tokens that then they're staking in another dap and you know it's all with this view towards trying to optimize sort of financial yield and return and you know also taking into account safety and and a lot of people are talking about um with with the sort of aggregators right of these different defi applications the ability to just put money in and then have it sort of smartly route between all of the different dApps that are out there and and be able to sort of smartly go to where liquidity is needed and and get yield from that and so forth. And it's just, it's a very, I think that it's a very clear parallel in terms of what the end goal is. But of course, in one, we're saying, okay, you know, we're going to be perhaps a bit more grounded and realistic about how much we can build over what period of time mm-hmm. and, and what behaviors we can ask the general population to adopt or change. Um, and that would be Astra, right, which is very much building on the legacy system. And then on the other side, of course, we have, you know, we have DeFi and these DeFi aggregators, which are just starting with completely new money and and new forms of tokens and and so forth and is a much bigger lift in terms of behavior change um but also potentially very interesting of course just because the the dream and the vision is so big yeah yeah that makes sense i think that that uh yeah just like the idea of i mean it sounds dumb but like smart money you know where the money itself is you know running around going to the places where it can get the most yield and then and it also is a nice vision for me personally where it's like i don't really care about any of this or i don't care about money and so i just want to like put it all away and have it do its thing and then eventually come back to me and hopefully there's more of it um absolutely yeah whether it's in crypto or um non-crypto that sounds good so i think maybe another question here and just to talk about your work with our listeners for a second with the open money initiative yes um what kind of uh i guess maybe give like a high level overview of it and like what y'all are doing these days yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So um, the Open Money Initiative, as I mentioned, is, is uh, or as I think you mentioned and introduced, Reese, is a nonprofit research organization uh, that looks at how people use money really specifically in closed economies, in failing monetary systems, and really just in general in places where money isn't working for them. And so, you know, a lot of what we look at is how people are hacking the system, not necessarily using cryptocurrency, but, you know, managing to get accounts offshore in places that have capital controls or or experiencing inflation, Um, you know, how people are tapping into their local networks in order to uh, create marketplaces or, you know, access, uh, access exchanges, things like this. And then, of course, you know, cryptocurrency does play a role in some of these places. And so we've spent a lot of time focused on Latin America and particularly Venezuela. Um, but we've also looked at countries like Cuba, like Argentina, that is of course much less extreme at the moment, uh, example of, of a closed financial system. And what we do is, is we go either on the ground to these countries back when we could travel or, you know, we engage with people who are on the ground there and really look to get a human centered idea of what the practical, the practical, uh, the practical uh, steps that they have to take in their everyday life are just to survive in some cases thrive. Um, And we take those back and we aim to 
you know, sort of spread the knowledge in particular, spread the knowledge to product builders and thinkers in Silicon Valley, people who are working on these ideas, uh, product builders and thinkers elsewhere, um, you know, sometimes even in their own home local regions, you know, partnering with them, and then also working with policymakers, because all of this obviously has a strong geopolitical intersection. Um, so that's what we do. It's incredible, an incredibly gratifying work. Um, I know that that you're about to bring this up, and so you know I'll preempt it maybe. But the <laughs> the latest update is uh, looking a bit at what's going on in Nigeria, um, and so Nigeria has been experiencing uh, really mass scale protests and and uh, and civil unrest for some time now. Um, in response to police brutality and and all sorts of other things, and um, as you know, in in backlash against the protests, uh, the government has taken several really problematic measures, in my view. Um, you know, one of which has been the mass slaughter of of a lot of the protesters and dissidents, and that's of course deeply saddening and and very scary. Um, and then, you know, another another one of the measures has been really censorship of the financial system, um, which has led a lot of the protesters to uh, solicit funds and and start operating uh, their their you know finances uh, using Bitcoin and using the BTC Pay server, which is heartening to see the the technology that can so often get sort of written off as oh, you know, this is just for sort of crypto bros and speculators actually being used for what I think is is the primary use case and really what it's intended for in this situation. That's obviously really quite dire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think the OMI stuff, I think it's a great example of taking some of these crypto dreams or whatever and actually manifesting and, and saying, no, let's actually like, <laughs> if, if we want to help bank the unbanked or, you know, if we want to help people in cap countries with capital controls we actually have to like go there and do it you can't just like build the stuff in silicon valley and then it will like get there somehow um, i think there are some really good examples where you all have just um worked with yeah you're on the ground in venezuela and colombia and these places and and maybe this was from you guys or maybe this was from give crypto i forget and it was and you're just like learning about hey um they are everybody's using android phones and like coinbase doesn't run on exactly this kind of android phone it's like exactly. that's a very simple thing and you could just like uh, help that so it makes me think of just like a sensing layer for uh humanity generally and especially for builders and policymakers, where you're like trying to sense the folks that have less power and then try to like up prioritize their needs um as you're like building for like the classical needs of, of folks in the west or whatever do you know by the way is there a within nigeria are they what kind of capital controls or things are they are they using right now so this is something that I'm working to understand better. Um, my understanding was that at one point they they basically just wholesale shut down the financial system, um, and I... you know as uh, not not that different actually from you know an internet blackout right um, that that you might see elsewhere uh, when there's sort of civil unrest happening, but basically a kind of financial services blackout occurred. And, um, you know, it's been coming back online sort of spottily, but certainly it it drove all of the protesters to get off of, uh, you know, the local Nigerian financial rails as much as possible. And 
um, some groups anyway, started out as just sort of posting Bitcoin addresses, of, you know, publicly, okay, you can donate to this. That obviously, for anyone who spent time in the Bitcoin space, um, you know, as you would know, has implications on privacy and anonymity. And so uh, some friends at the Human Rights Foundation and, and some other organizations uh, worked with them to get them online using the BTC Pay server, which is uh, self-hosted and, and much more secure route to go for this kind of activity. And so that's been, again, just really heartening to see. Yeah, it is amazing. It's It's a great... Yeah, just a great sign of exit in the power of permissionless protocols. And although they have all kinds of issues and it's, you know, all the crypto bro stuff or just you know, financial speculation, all those things, it's like, hey, the ability for folks to exit and to say, hey, I do want to use this Bitcoin thing when the, com- the government has shut down. Like that's, it's a heartening story. So I hope that it is. And as you know, I just, yeah, I hope it helps the folks on the ground there. And I hope that uh, y'all keep doing cool work with OMI around sensing and, and working with on the ground folks around the world to help with financial inclusion and stuff. Um, yeah, is there thank you. One, yeah, yeah, good luck. Um, <laughs> um, another question here, just on the final crypto question. Thinking about, so when I taught uh, blockchain ethics at MIT, there's a lot of pieces of of how cryptocurrency or changing these like you know lego primitives of money how that can affect the world do you see i don't know yeah like how like how would you think about the long run impacts of of crypto and and blockchain technology and you know are there any things you're especially excited or not like worried about any kind of concerns you might have or or just excitements yeah absolutely um you know i think that I I tend to think of Bitcoin specifically and cryptocurrency broadly as uh, sort of chaotic neutral, if you will. Um, You know, if you have chaotic good, chaotic evil, chaotic neutral, insofar as I think that it is very clearly a disruptive force. Um, You know, it is, it runs very counter to a lot of how the world works today. But it is also very neutral insofar as, you know, who has access to it, who can use it. And so, you know, one thing that I always like to highlight around this is something that became very obvious as we were doing our research through the Open Money Initiative in Venezuela specifically is, okay, yes, there are people, you know, I spoke to young women who uh, were engineering students who managed to spin up Bitcoin miners, and that's their entire family's income now. And it's, you know, it's saving them really in this crisis that that the country is experiencing. But, you know, who else is using Bitcoin in Venezuela is the government and the exact people who are creating and perpetuating these really problematic policies. And so that's where I think, again, it's just important to acknowledge, like, this is a tool. It is neutral in that sense. And we don't get to choose sort of who picks it up and and uses it for their own purposes. Um, and so it's hard for me to say, you know, is this net positive, net negative? Um, is it important? I think that's absolutely true, but it is very much worth acknowledging that it, it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think that the, the neutrality piece, so I definitely hear that. And I think, and there's like, this is the classic is tech neutral or is it not debate? And, you know, how should these permissionless protocols yeah, how permissionless should they be and how much should they have friction or what have you? 
do you feel like there's a bit of a i'm just thinking about like modern day web 2.0 or whatever like gaffa stuff and how that claim of technology being neutral is something that they would try to do and say hey it's like it's a neutral piece of technology if like if white supremacists want to like say kill the jews or whatever on our platforms like that's okay how do you kind of reconcile that with like as more intense things or whatever start to happen on these with you know with permissionless money you know like how and should we add more friction back into the system you can see what i'm saying i think that i think that that's happening on its own you know i think that if i look at the the way that regulation is trending it's towards more not less more restriction not less um and i think that for that reason, I tend to worry less about that direction of it. I think that I think that regulators kind of have that handled. I tend to actually worry more about um, about the other direction, you know, about it it going too far to the point where those who do need it can't. And another reason for that that I think is worth sharing is just that based on my research and and firsthand knowledge and secondhand knowledge and, and experience, those who have power and resources will always find a way to do what they want, whether that's money launder, whether that is, um, you know, transfer of funds, whether that is tax evasion, um, you know, whatever, whatever sort of nefarious activities, if you're rich and powerful, you will find a way to do that. Um, I think that you know, it's at the individual level that things become very hard. And, you know, again, as we see with dissident groups around the world, um, you know, they they are clearly the groups who are not in power in the, the various situations and circumstances, and it's them who then struggle. And so I think that that's something to consider as we continue to add and roll out regulations and restrictions is just who is this hurting um, and and why and and make sure that we're making the the appropriate trade-offs around all of that yeah that makes sense and I think and I, I agree with your pushback there which is like which is true which is that the regulators they already there's you know thousands tens of thousands of people who are already worried about um, how how money flows around the world and making it flow in an okay way and probably surveilling a little bit too much. And so, you know, if we can be on the side of, hey, let's make sure we actually build off this stuff, um, that that's the the place where we need more kind of uh, uh, emphasis and attention. So yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. As one final question here today, Joe, I think something I just want to ask you about, um, you're relatively, have, have you been at a, a venture capitalist for a year now? How long has it been? Uh, something like that. I think like 15 months between a year 15 and a year months. and a half. Cool. Yeah. A year to year and a half. Um, something that I just want to ask about is just like, you know, venture capital life and how it is. I know it's, it was just funny for me as I was going, as I was getting deeper into Twitter land and doing these things and like learning that like, oh, there's all these other like, you know, I was, it was like, there were cool other random curious people about this stuff. You and Catherine Wu and a bunch of other folks who all ended up just like becoming VCs. And I, and I say that with a kind of a negative tone and I don't mean it in a deeply negative tone because I, some, some of my best friends are VCs. Um, <laughs> and I just thought for myself, like how, like, do I want to go down this path? But it's also like, I don't know there's something about, so I don't know, what do you think? I mean, maybe my, my question is for folks who are 
it just felt to me like I wish that there were other paths. I, I, mean, I guess I'm curious about your story there and how you thought, ah, I'm going to be a become a, a venture capitalist and especially like what other paths were kind of available for you for like a hyper curious person that liked to, you know, you know, have lots of, yeah, I'd like to like um, help people and coach people. I feel like VC is a good combination, a good bundle of like lots of learning plus coaching people. And I just, there aren't that many other bundles that look like that. So tell me about your story with VC and if you've had similar kind of qualms or whatever. No, that's, that's very true. I mean, I, I'll, I'll draw a parallel here, which is that I, I don't often talk about this because it feels like ancient history now, but once upon a time back in high school and college and even post-college uh, for a while, I was on a rowing team, um, various rowing teams over, over time, obviously. And on the rowing team, people are always surprised if they know me to hear me say that because I am five foot two and don't have the physique that you would expect a rower to have. And that's because I was a coxswain on rowing teams. And so the coxswain is the little person in the boat who does not have an oar in their hand, is not actually doing the workout with the, with the athletes on the team, but is sitting there and steering and is kind of the coach in the boat uh, and drawing up the strategy and, and the plan and so forth. And I think that your parallel race is, is spot on that, as a VC, I think that it's very much like being in that coxswain seat where you don't actually, you're not the man in the ring, you know, the proverbial man in the ring. You're not the one with an oar in her hand. Um, you're not the one actually in the trenches building a company, but you are plugged in uh, to what's going on. You know, you are kind of a coach in a way. Uh, you can help with being the strategic set of eyes who's looking around outside of the boat and and reporting back what's going on um and you know you're you're also there as uh, a supporter of those who do have the 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 or in their hand if if you will or you know the founders who are building their companies and so to me that's that's actually a really appealing part of the job i think though that it does come with the trade off of you know, you don't get you you don't get sort of the the satisfaction of being the person who is doing the building, um, and I think that for that reason, it's definitely not for everyone. And I think that for that reason, you know, I think that there is a decent amount within VC culture of sort of trying to you know VC brags is is a is a Twitter account that I think hits the nail on the head with its sort of tongue-in-cheek approach to this but you know there is a lot of sort of ego within the venture capital ecosystem uh, where I think that that notion of okay you know you're you're in the coxswain seat you're not an actual rower gets kind of lost and I think that it's very important to stay self-aware about that mm-hmm yeah, that's, I mean, that makes sense. And A, it's cool that you were a coxswain. That always felt like a cool, it's a very unique position. Um, you're facing backwards, which is kind of scary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, yeah, and I think that, I guess for me, there's also just this question of like, yeah, like how folks who have that desire to not actually be the rower, but to be the coxswain type, um, it just felt to me as I was exploring myself, like there weren't that many options besides becoming a venture capitalist, which sounds like stupid and weird, but like, I think it's, it was kind of true where it's like, okay, if you want to be a person who does lots of research, who likes lots of different fields, who wants to help folks, 
how else can you like have a job? And so I think, I don't know. I think um, I wish that there were more paths for folks, but, uh, but I'm glad that you found your path. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I did. Great. Um, well, thank you again for coming on today, Jill. And where should folks find you or slow or OMI on the interwebs? Uh, probably all on Twitter. I am on Twitter far too often. And so find us all there. <laughs> Great. Yeah. At Jill Carlson? At Jill, Jill Ruth Carlson. Oh, yeah. Jill Ruth Carlson. I, okay. I couldn't quite snag Jill Carlson as the mm, handle. Yeah. Too bad. Too bad. Uh, well, thank you again for coming on today. And uh, thanks for coming on and listening. Listeners, goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I want to have two quick notes here. One is, I really like what Jill said about making sure that what we're doing is effective when we think about cancel culture and wokeness. And I don't know the best way to get at this, but the underlying ideas behind so much of social justice activism are so good that racism and sexism and unconscious bias and systemic oppression exist and are bad. Like That's amazing. And the question then is how do we convert that into real change and you know, KPIize it and stuff? So that's one thing I'm thinking about after this episode. And the other thing I want to highlight is you know, Jill's comment that tech is neutral. And I agree with her, and you, you saw me push back a bit with her in the episode, and I think she responded well with the idea that regulation is already doing lots of work, especially around the cryptocurrency side. So she's not as worried about make the builders themselves making sure things are good. But I do just want to push back on this idea that tech is neutral. And I think that you can turn it into kind of a you know broke woke bespoke thing where the broke perspective is that you know tech is not neutral that you have you know that it is the problem that you know facebook itself is the problem and then the woke perspective is no no no, no. facebook's not the problem people are the problem it's just a reflection of society you know this is the tech is neutral perspective and you know this is kind of the same perspective as the you know guns don't kill people people kill people but I think the correct perspective here is not tech is neutral or tech is not neutral, but rather this, you know, third way that is the libertarian paternalism perspective, which states that we both build tech, so we kind of determine what kind of neutral or non-neutral tech we're building, and B, we can place frictions on that tech that can maximize positive or minimize negative outcomes. So as an example of this, you know, Mastodon, the peer-to-peer messaging service, on their homepage, they tell a story about queer folks hanging out on Mastodon. And what they don't do is tell a story about, you know, alt-right folks using Mastodon to, you know, decentralize, you know, in a decentralized, you know, censorship-resistant way, destroy or, like, you know, uh, run people over at a protest. So, you can kind of add these frictions that nudge people towards the positive outcomes we want. Or as another example, you know, we are the ones who are the builders of tech. And so with Mastodon as an example, yeah, it's of the most neutral censorship resistant platforms, but actually 
they added in some lines into their code that actively, you know, censored Gab, this um, weird alt-right platform. And so I think that it's important to, whenever you hear tech is neutral or tech is not neutral, to push back on either of those perspectives and to think from this libertarian paternal perspective and the frictions and incentives that we place around tech as we build it. Great. Thanks and goodbye.